You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Good morning, EBF family. It is good to join with you in worship on this, the second Sunday of Advent, as we remember today the peace that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brings. And I recognize that so many of us in this time are feeling worn out, isolated, perhaps tired of waiting, even as we are in this season of waiting. Still others are sick or maybe recovering from sickness. I just want you to know that I am praying for you along with our incredible staff and elder teams, and that I'm available to connect anytime if you need someone to pray with you or for you or perhaps just be a listening ear, or if there are any particular needs that you have as well. We have some compassionate folks in our church that would love to come alongside you. Encourage all of us in this time, though, to reach out to one another, to check in, see what needs people have, and to love and serve one another well, and also to love and serve our neighbors. In the midst of these trying times, though, God's Word provides comfort and hope and assurance. And the book of Ephesians, where we find ourselves here, is no exception. Ephesians is all about the unity of the church in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, all according to the plan of God. The first half of the book, where we are in now, gives us a stunning and sweeping view of the cosmic unity that we have with God through Christ, a reality that is heightened and highlighted especially in the text we're going to look at here this morning. For those who may be unfamiliar, we've been reading through the book of Ephesians each week as a church. I know I've been encouraged by what I've been getting out of that and also what's been shared in our ethos community. I would encourage you to, if you haven't, to join in that challenge. It lines up roughly to read a chapter a day for six days. Ephesians begins, though, on a note of praise in the doxology in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And there we find that we are richly blessed in Christ with election, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, revelation, belonging, acceptance, and hope, all according to the perfect plan of God. Then last week, Danny did an awesome job just opening up the next passage in verses 15 through 23 and reminded us that as we pray for one another, thanksgiving should flow into intercession and then into praise. And so many of the things that Paul mentions here and praises God for surrounding Christ then get picked up and applied in our passage here today. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And in these verses here, Paul is going to paint a stark contrast between our helplessness and hopelessness apart from Christ and then the great reversal that has taken place as God has breathed new life into us through Christ himself. After the scripture reading, the response will be, thanks be to God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in this time. We praise you for the riches of your mercy, the greatness of your love, and the extravagance of your grace. We ask that through your Spirit you would illumine your word, give us fresh eyes and ears to see and to hear it, and prepare us, Lord, to respond as you have called us in obedience and faith. For your glory alone, Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Imagine three patients with heart disease being asked into the doctor's office after their scans and their x-rays. Well, says the doctor, I do have some good news for you, but you won't realize what good news it is unless I first tell you the bad news. All of you have serious heart disease because of, you've been chain smoking for over 30 years, and unless each of you has major surgery, you'll be dead within a year. Outrageous, shrieks the first patient. How could you criticize me like this? I came in here for some reassuring encouragement, and you've made me feel terrible. It's a disgrace. And he storms out of the clinic. The second patient responds with menacing fury. How dare you? How do you think you are telling me, or who do you think you're telling me my heart needs surgery? Who do you think you are? I'll find many other doctors to tell me I'm fine. And then I'm a lot healthier than some smokers I know. And I feel fine for that matter. You're the most arrogant doctor I've ever met. And he too stomps out of the clinic. Then imagine a third patient who sits there quietly for a moment, but then says, doctor, it's a terrible shock to hear I need surgery. But thank you for telling me the truth. I'm so relieved that there's good news of an operation to save me. Please tell me about it. I'm indebted to Richard Koken for this example, but this is similar to what we find here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Paul has incredible and glorious news to share of God's amazing, extravagant grace. But we will never truly recognize and rejoice and revel in it until we recognize the shocking hopelessness and helplessness of our situation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage here takes us from what we might say the cave to the mountaintop. It moves from amazing depths in verses 1 through 3 to amazing heights in verses 4 through 7. And it's all because of God's amazing grace. In Ephesians 1 verse 10, Paul emphasizes God's plan to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. He now unpacks how God will accomplish his purpose how he begins with the reconciling of people to God, here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It begins with amazing depths. Apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead, verses 1 through 3. Here Paul reveals in stark terms three ways that we were helpless and hopeless apart from Christ. The first is that we were dead. It starts off, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were completely dead, not just 
mostly dead, as the character Miracle Max says in the movie The Princess Bride. We were completely dead, incapable of doing anything about it. As descendants of Adam and Eve, our human, all human beings are spiritually dead. And this is because of, as the text says, our trespasses and sins. Biblically speaking, to trespass is to deviate or to take a wrong step. And to sin is to miss the mark. Together, Paul gives us a comprehensive picture of our total rebellion and also our responsibility before God. To walk in these things then is a metaphor that means that this is how we lived or this is how we conducted ourselves. It has Old Testament roots like in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Apart from Christ, human beings are the walking dead. Not only were we dead, but we were captive, as verses 2 and 3 show us. Paul goes on to explain three things that held us captive. First, we were captive to the world. Verse 2 says, following the course of this world. The word for course here could also be translated age. Without Christ, we are oriented toward what Paul calls in Galatians 1, the present evil age, rather than the age to come. The world, then, is a broad term in the New Testament that includes the earth, people, and systems, and structures that leave God out of the picture or are openly hostile to Him. So when Paul says, following the course of this world, it's a way of of saying life focused on the present evil age and shaped by a system that does not consider God. We were captive to the world, and also we were captive to the devil. Verse 2 continues, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Those who do not follow Christ have a ruler, and that ruler is Satan. In the gospel, Satan is called the ruler of demons and the prince of this world. Elsewhere, Paul calls him the God of this age. The prince of the power of the air then is further described as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience is a a Hebrew idiom that means people characterized by disobedience. It's a powerful reminder of our culpability and our rebellion against God. We weren't just passively shackled by these forces. We were actively disobedient in our trespasses and sins. There's a gentleman by the name of Tukumbo Adeyemo who has this to say about this passage. He writes, There is a strong spiritual correlation between disobedience to God and slavery and bondage to Satan. His aim is to make a sinful life seem so natural that when their behavior is challenged, people will simply reply, But that is how the world works. Not only were we captive to the world, and also to the devil, but we were captive to the flesh. Verse 3 bears this out. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The flesh here refers to our, our natural inclination to oppose God's will and spirit. Apart from Christ, we are oriented toward our own selfish urges and concerns. And these are further explained as the desires of the body and mind. Apart from Christ, every person is subservient to the tyrant king of the self, along with all of the lustful desires, cravings, thoughts, and attitudes that go with it. 
like the phrase sons of disobedience. This is also a, a way of highlighting our own rebellious nature and our corrupt desires and thinking. We were captive to something outside of us, the world, something inside of us, the flesh, and something beyond us, the devil. And because of this, we were condemned. The rest of verse 3 says, And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 5 also helps us to understand that because we are descendants of Adam, we inherit his guilt and deserve God's punishment as a result. Children of wrath is another one of those Hebrew idioms that means people destined for wrath. Uh, Doug Moo, a theologian writing on this particular passage, has this to say. He says, God's wrath is not a mechanistic process of cause and effect, but is a personal manifestation of his perfect holiness. Unlike the capricious and vindictive spite of many Greco-Roman deities, God's wrath is the necessary and appropriate response to creatures who reject their creator and spurn his mercy. God meets out his wrath in the present and will do so climactically in the future. Paul is making clear here that apart from Christ, all of humankind stands condemned and is deserving of the just punishment for our sin. Apart from Christ, we were dead because of our trespasses and sins. We were captive to the world, the devil, and the flesh, and we were deserving of God's wrath. There is also a striking movement in these verses from you to we to the rest of mankind. Similar to what Paul does in chapter 1, Paul starts off addressing you, mainly the Gentiles in and around Ephesus. And then he switches to we in verse 3, adding himself and his fellow Jewish background believers. He makes it clear that simply belonging to the people of Israel did not automatically mean acceptance before God. But then to top it all off, he adds the rest of mankind at the end of verse 3. This is every person's condition apart from knowing God. There is worldwide solidarity in our hostility and rebellion. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul describes life apart from Christ as being separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's in verse 12 of this chapter. And then later in Chapter 4, verse 18. Similarly, he writes, We are darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of heart. There's so much more that Scripture has to say about our situation, our hopelessness, our helplessness apart from Christ. I would encourage you to explore other passages of Scripture that describe just that. But here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, these are not the words of an, an anthropologist studying a tribe of cannibals somewhere. Nor are they the words of a criminologist examining what makes a mass murderer tick. No, these are the words of a doctor pronouncing the spiritual diagnosis of every human being for all time apart from Christ. But this can be a tough pill to swallow. Society constantly bombards us with other views of, of humanity. One such view is that humankind is well. That people are basically good, that we should trust in the innate goodness of humanity. Another view is that humankind is neutral, that we start off as blank slates and are then merely products of our environment. Another view is that humankind is sick, 
that something might be wrong and all we need is a little self-help. God helps those who help themselves. Side note, that is not in the Bible. But the truth is that humankind is dead. We are completely dead, totally incapable of doing anything about it on our own. And biblically speaking, this is the concept of depravity. It basically means that a part, that every part of humanity is marred by sin. But there are some common misconceptions, though, I think, around, around depravity. It does not mean that all human beings are equally depraved. You know, most people sense that they could sink even deeper. Nor does it mean that human beings are incapable of any good. God does, in fact, pour out his common grace. Nor does it mean that human beings have no dignity. We all bear the image of God, marred though, defaced though, because of sin. What depravity means is that the fall has come to affect and infect every part of the human being. The mind, the emotions, the heart, the will, nothing is unaffected, and all of us are totally depraved. Humankind is captive to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Remember in the Christmas Carol, I don't know if you've watched that yet here during this season, but in the Christmas Carol, think of Jacob Marley dragging around those locks and chains. It may not look at it at first look like it at first glance, but we are surrounded by people who are shackled as we once were by the world, the devil, and the flesh. They're dragging around these locks and chains. They are the walking dead. And humankind not only are we captive, but all humankind is also deserving of God's wrath, the just punishment due to us because of our sin. And this is what flows from the sheer holiness of God. Instead of an inflated view of ourselves, we need a true realization of our situation. Unfortunately, it's easy for people to be like what we might call grimy coal miners down in a mine, comparing ourselves to one another, imagining that by comparison we are cleaner than others. So like in the opening story, we can react like the first patient in total outrage. Or we can react like the second patient in contempt and find someone else who's willing to tell us what we want to hear. Or we can react like the third patient in shock, but eager to hear the good news. And that is where Paul goes next. He moves from the cave to the soaring, amazing heights that God made us alive with Christ. Verses 4 through 7. Think about it for a moment. What do kings and rulers normally do with rebels? Crush them. That's right. In Star Wars, this is reflected in what Moff Tarkin says. He says, we will then crush the rebellion with one swift stroke. But God is different. The king of kings against whom a rebellion is being waged responds unlike any other. And it is all signaled by the phrase, but God. Here is the turning point. Here is where the ascent begins. These amazing words stand out, stand out like, like a diamond against the, the backdrop of black velvet. Everything that happens next is God-centered. And everything that happens next is solely out of God's own initiative. And in these verses here, we're going to explore three key questions. First question, what prompted God to save rebels? Verses 4 through 5, we see the riches of his mercy, the greatness of his love, and the extravagance of his grace. First, the riches of his mercy there in verse 4. 
but God being rich in mercy. Mercy means God not giving us what we deserve. And God in the Old Testament, we see especially God abounds in mercy. Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He delights in his mercy. Micah 7, verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God's mercy on helpless rebels flows from his heart of compassion rather than anything we have done to deserve it. The riches of his mercy prompted God to save rebels along with here the greatness of his love. Verse 4 continues, because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul emphasizes the vastness of God's love by, by piling up these terms, the modifier great, the noun love, and then the verb loved. He has already done this with grace in Ephesians 1 verse 6 when he writes, His glorious grace with which he has graced us. He was not responding because of our love for him. No, Romans 5 verse 8 reminds us of this, that but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is also worth noting that God's wrath and God's love dwell together here in verses 3 through 4. Sometimes these get pitted against one another, but God's wrath and God's love do not contradict one another. In his perfection, God displays his wrath because sin is what we might call a personal affront to a holy God. And in his perfection, God displays his love because, because he is so merciful and loving. And nowhere is this seen more magnificently than on the cross of Jesus Christ. So the riches of his mercy, the greatness of his love, and the extravagance of his grace. Paul kind of interrupts the flow in verse 5 and says, By grace you have been saved. It's like this phrase just spills out of him and then sets the stage for what's going to follow in verses 8 through 10. But in verse 7, he also adds the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's like saying his very, very great grace. God's grace is the basis of this whole rescue operation. Grace is God's commitment to us, though we are completely undeserving. That is rooted in who he is. It is a free gift given to us, and it is all by his initiative alone. So God's character the riches of his mercy, the greatness of his love, and the extravagance of his grace, this is what prompted him to save rebels. The second question is, what, God, what has God done to save rebels? In verses 5 and 6, we see that God made us alive. He raised us up and seated us with Christ. Before exploring, though, what God has done, Paul reiterates that we were completely dead. Verse 5, he says that once more. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were unable to do anything about our helplessness and our hopelessness. God made us alive with Christ. God brought life to our dead bodies. This is none other than the miracle of new birth. To use the theological term, this is regeneration. New spiritual life given us. We now possess a living relationship with God. And notice that with each of these things that God does, it is with Christ. With Christ. Each of these things in verses 5 through 6 is with Christ. 
as we have seen in Ephesians and will continue to see, everything is of, in, by, for, from, and with the Lord Jesus Christ. This point is also made in Colossians 2, verse 13, when Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God made us alive with Christ. And second, God raised us up with Christ. He raised us up with him. In Ephesians 1.20, there Paul declares the glorious truth that God raised Christ from the dead. Now we too are raised to new life with Christ. We are given new spiritual life in this age and look forward then to that day when we will be given renewed physical bodies. And we get to experience this new resurrection life now. It starts now and it lasts for all eternity. 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 4, it kind of connects these ideas of regeneration and resurrection and our future hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God made us alive with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. And third, God seated us with Christ. Look at the rest of verse 6. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Once more in Ephesians 1 verse 20, Paul also declares that God seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so now we too are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have gone from enemies of God to seated with Christ. A total transformation. And the life that we now have with Christ comes with privilege, with security, and with responsibility. God allows us to share in some of the victory and some of the authority that Christ has. And we no, long, no longer need to fear the world, the devil, or the flesh. We are no longer captive to them. But we recognize that there is still some mopping up to do of those forces. God made us alive with Christ. He seated us. He raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with Christ. And so the third question, why? Why does God save rebels? Verse 7 gives us an answer to this, essentially to display the extravagance of his grace for all eternity. Look at verse 7. It says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's ultimate purpose in saving rebels is to display the extravagance of his grace to his people and to the world around us for all eternity. We are like exhibit A of God's mercy, love, grace, and kindness. In this season, when we see different nativity displays, it's as if we are just a display ourselves. We are a display of God's extravagant grace. And so how are you displaying his grace? So dear church, apart from Christ, we were dead because of our trespasses and sins. We were captive to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And we were deserving of God's wrath. But God, in his mercy, in his love, and in his grace, he made us alive. He raised us up. And he seated us with Christ to display his extravagant grace for all eternity. Richard Koken has this, uh, this analogy that I found. It, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's one that I found so striking so, so, just so vivid in my mind. He writes this, Imagine yourself as a decaying corpse 
we were spiritually dead. Trussed up in chains inside a coffin, we were captive to the world, the devil in the flesh. Heading inexorably to the flames of the crematorium fires, we were objects of God's wrath. Suddenly, as your coffin is engulfed by flames, someone leaps into the flames, smashes open the coffin, and despite the most horrific burns that scar him forever, retrieves your corpse, breathes life, breathes life into your body, washes you and clothes you in his own clothes, tenderly carries you to his chauffeur-driven Bentley, and takes you home to his father's presidential palace to stay in his room and feast at his table, enjoying the abundant hospitality of his father forever. That is every Christian's personal story. Magnified both by the horrors of hell from which we've been rescued and the privileges to which we've been exalted. The main problem many people face in approaching a passage, though, like this is how seriously do we take it? Do we really believe the picture that Paul paints here of our lives without Christ? Do we really believe that they are as bad as he makes it out to be? Are we convinced that without Christ we are spiritually dead, that we are captive to the world, the devil, and the flesh, and that we are deserving of God's wrath? On the other hand, do we really believe that what God has done to rescue us is as good as what Paul describes? Does God really lavish us in his mercy? his love, his grace and kindness, and maybe even more than that, are we actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places? The truth is that our situation apart from Christ is worse than we can ever fathom. And the reality of what God has done to breathe new life into us, raise us up and seat us with Christ is more glorious than we can ever imagine. We will marvel over this for all eternity. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 reminds us that angels long to look into such things. Let us together rejoice and celebrate, recognize and praise God for his character and bask in his great love that moved him to save rebels, even like us. A passage like this, though, too, begs the question, are you in the depths of spiritual deadness or in the heights of new life in Christ? Perhaps you find yourself like the third patient from the opening story, perhaps shocked by this description of your depravity, but maybe stirred by the good news of what God has done in Christ to rescue sinners. Maybe God's Spirit is at work in you right now, making it possible for you to respond in the way that Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 lays out. We're going to look at this in more detail next week, but for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Will you receive God's free gift of grace and respond in faith to what God has done out of his own saving initiative? Conversion then is essentially going from one sphere to another. Will you remain in the realm of the dead or will you join the resurrection parade? I'd be happy to connect with you. I know any of our elders or staff, we'd love to connect with you if you have more questions about this, if you sense the Spirit's call upon your life, or if there are more things that you're wrestling with in your own journey. We would love the opportunity to connect with you. In fact, one of the things you can do is to fill out our connection card, our, our online connection card. We'd love to follow up. Perhaps in seeing such a radical change from death to life, you might struggle with your own conversion story that maybe seems much less dramatic 
I know this is the case for myself. Maybe you've grown up in a godly family and find it hard to pinpoint a specific moment in time. Some conversions are like Paul's. We might call them sudden, dramatic, while other conversions are more like Timothy's, the more gradual and ordinary. But whatever your story, the same movement takes place, the same movement from death to life. Whether it is revolutionary or evolutionary, the same movement takes place from death to life. Perhaps you have joined in the resurrection parade, but are feeling the tension of the paradox that we are both raised but still on earth, that we are seated with Christ and still struggling in this world. You know, there are aspects of the faith that are what we might call both already and not yet, something we will see more of in Ephesians, this this tension. Paul can use the word salvation itself. Paul uses the word saved in three ways. He can write, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. We need to recognize the new resurrection life that has already begun, as well as the privilege, the security, and authority that we now have as those already seated with Christ, as we remain then between two worlds. So here's that bottom line once more. Apart from Christ, we were dead because of our trespasses and sins. We were captive to the world, the devil, and the flesh, and deserving of God's wrath. But God, in his mercy, love, and grace, made us alive. He raised us up and seated us with Christ to display his extravagant grace for all eternity. Let us rejoice over the truth of the gospel. We were spiritually dead, but God made us alive with Christ. We were walking in sin, but God extended forgiveness. We were captive to the world, but God transferred us to his kingdom. We were under the rulership of Satan, but God placed us under the headship of Christ. We were captive to the desires of the flesh, but God gave us his spirit. We were sons of disobedience, but God adopted us as his sons and daughters of the king. We were objects of wrath, but God had mercy upon us. We were helpless and hopeless, but God raised us up in Christ. We were enemies of God, but God seated us at his table. So that, as verse 7 reminds us, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these glorious truths. This passage that reveals to us in striking terms the depths of our own depravity. And yet, we see against that backdrop the amazing nature of your gospel. Your love poured out upon us. Your mercy, your grace your forgiveness. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in this new resurrection life that you have given us. God, we recognize the struggles that we still have in this time and that tension that we wrestle with as we live between these two worlds. But God, we thank you that you have placed us under your headship, under your rulership now in Christ. And help us to walk, O oh Lord, in this new newness of life. Even today, as we, as we reflect on your son's death and resurrection. 
Help us to remember, Lord, in this season of waiting, all that we are waiting for when Jesus comes again, the hope to which he has called us, the glorious inheritance of the saints in light. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray that you'd help us to display your grace to everyone around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.